Welcome to Fort McMurray Matters. Keeping you connected to our community. Brought to you by Cooper & Company Law Firm and Fort McMurray Orthodontics on Mix 103.7. Good afternoon and welcome to Fort McMurray Matters. I'm Sean Kreitz and I am joined in studio here with our other reporter, John Tupper. And we have a guest on the phone. John, I'll let you take it away. We're joined today by phone with uh, former Deputy Premier, the Honourable Thomas Lukasik. Thomas, how are you? Doing well. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. So, Thomas, you were um, Deputy Premier under uh, Alison Redford when uh, she was uh, the Premier, and you were also um, a Minister, I believe, of uh, Education under Premier Ed Stelmach. And then in about 2015, there was a, a big change in provincial politics, and uh, you lost the elections. So I wanted to talk to you a little bit about life after politics. Well, sure. I, uh, you know, I had the honor of serving with five premiers. I, I started uh, with Ralph Klein. Uh, I was elected first to office in 2001. And again, I was fortunate to have several cabinet portfolios. But indeed, uh, 2015 was a monumental year for Alberta politics and for me personally. Uh, after uh, serving four terms in the legislature, I lost. Most of us progressive conservatives lost the election. Yeah, and so, um, you know, I guess in the immediate aftermath of the election, uh, you, you didn't uh, do what most people do, which is kind of lay low for a little while, maybe join a think tank a little after. You uh, you stayed quite active on uh, Twitter and, and, and not shy with your political opinions. You know, how else have you stayed active in, in, in sort of the provincial uh, political scene? You know, uh, yes, uh, a lot of politicians tend to get into consulting, and, and that's something that I never wanted to do, because to be frank with you, I did not like consultants when I was in office. Often they're selling access to ministers, which companies and others can gain free of charge. They only ask, they, they act as, as, as brokers. So that's something that I did not want to be a part of. And, and I was vocal in our party during my leadership race in 2014, because the end of, of the PC dynasty was eminent and it was visible. And, and in my leadership race, I was raising a number of the issues that we had within our party, starting with with uh, attitude of uh, uh, of entitlement uh, through through many others. So when I lost the election, uh, which wasn't surprise to me uh, during the campaign, I decided to speak up about those issues and, and the problems within the Progressive Conservative Party. But that's something that I do because I'm passionate about this province, about our country. But obviously, it was time to reinvent myself after 15 almost years in office. I was a, I was an entrepreneur and self-employed prior to being elected for seven years. Prior to that, I was a teacher. Um, I needed to figure out what it is that I want to do. And, and my natural instinct always is to work for myself. So, so I got into, uh, uh, into what you would call a serial entrepreneurship, uh, which included uh, importing uh, construction materials uh, out of Europe, um, which then transformed itself into forming a construction company and, and, and building in, infill housing in Alberta. And that ultimately led to forming a company that provides halal, uh, or if you wish, interest-free mortgages to our Canadian Muslim community. Yeah, and let's uh, let's talk about that for a little bit. Uh, you know, I myself am not uh, very familiar with uh, what a halal mortgage is. I, I, you know, I'm familiar with what halal food is. I'm I'm familiar with mm -hmm. uh, some of the very basics of of, of the Islamic faith. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about what is a halal mortgage and uh, and why it's important? Certainly. Well, the word, word halal really means that it's religiously permissible. <clears throat> and halal financing actually is not 
that's foreign because Christians, particularly Catholics, Roman Catholics, uh, could not pay or, or charge interest. Um, in the past, it was considered to be a sin, a usury. But then uh, Catholics let go of this of this dogma, but Muslims still hold on to it. So there are a number of principles. Number one, uh, there is this moral school of thought that charging someone interest because they have no money and you have money and they need your money is, is usury. You're taking advantage of the fact that you have money and they don't. Hence, poor people have to pay more for anything they buy. So it is considered by Muslim um, an ethical uh, an ethical breach. But also, uh, pious Muslims do not want to deal with money that is derived from the interest. So that's another issue. And And then they have a traditional... A structure of contracts uh, that has to do uh, with no third parties, uh, no hazard, which means not insuring loans. So, so there are a number of strict guidelines that pious Muslims must follow, which means that they really cannot go to a bank and borrow money because our Western banking system is structured around uh, charging interest, whereas Middle Eastern uh, Islamic banks, they still charge profit, you know, don't get me wrong, there is still profit being made, but it is not in a form of an interest and, and the, the, the contracts are structured in a more of a partnership relationship than lender-borrower relationship. And, and it became obvious to me that this service isn't available anywhere in Canada on a large scale. Uh, so my partner and I, uh, we spent about two and a half years working with uh, the Canadian lawyers um, and working with Islamic finance scholars from across the world to put together contracts that are both compliant with the religious requirements, but also enforceable uh, by Canadian law and that provide consumer protection. And after a number of years of working on this, um, we, we managed to accomplish that. And now we finance mortgages uh, across Alberta, and, and soon uh, we may be announcing expansion across Canada. Now, that's, uh, that's really remarkable. I know uh, the most recent statistics from uh, Stats Canada show there's something like uh, 1.8 million uh, people of the Islamic faith uh, living in Canada. And I know in Fort McMurray, we have a very sizable um, Muslim population. I'm, I'm somewhat surprised uh, that you're one of the first um, people to start offering this kind of a service. Well, you know, uh, the need was always there. And, and yes, uh, uh, our Muslim community is one of our fastest growing communities in, in Canada. And unfortunately, they because they have to follow religion, just uh, like Jews follow kosher food and, and, and every religion has some restrictions, theirs happens to be that. And because of that, Many of them are renters. Um, they, they, you know, when they go to a bank and take a mortgage, they, they really run afoul with, with their religious teachings. So um, it is good for Canada because, uh, you know, as you said, the largest growing community in this country cannot participate fully in our economy and, um, and cannot own houses. And, and basically what that often does is it condemns you into, uh, into a cycle of poverty because you're a renter for life. Um, you don't get to accumulate any, any equity. So, so this program that we have put together, uh, which is now used by a large number of, of uh, Muslim families from across Alberta, uh, gives them the opportunity that you and I would take for granted, owning a home, home and paying off a mortgage. And we're just going to take our first break here on Fort McMurray Matters, but then we're going to hop back into John and Thomas talking about how he got involved with uh, Ukraine in the past year. 
We're back to Fort McMurray Matters. Brought to you by Cooper and Company Law Firm and Fort McMurray Orthodontics on Mix 103.7. And we're back here with Fort McMurray Matters. Good afternoon. I'm here in studio with our reporter, John Tupper, and he is on the phone with Thomas Lukasik, former Deputy Premier. And I, you know, I have to ask a little bit there uh, about how this financially structures on your end as the uh, the financier. You know, not only is uh, our banking system structured on on loans and interest, but the most of the economic levers that are are used by you know money management at the federal level are, are done by altering interest rates. How does that? And, and you know, interest rates have been in the news non-stop for the last year, uh, Thomas. How does it work with with you as a financer? How do you protect yourself from bad loans? How do you, um, you know, cover your own overhead? Uh, how does that kind of play out? You know, we, we look at finance from our Western perspective, just like we look at the map of the world, which is always drawn with, you know, Euro being in the center. It's a, it's a very Eurocentric uh, or Western-centric way of looking at finances. But the rest of the world, a large part of the world, which is Islamic world, uh, they simply do accounting differently and 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 their economies are thriving uh, so we are based on dividends uh, instead of interest now everything could be recalculated someone would say well you're just changing words around um, and uh, but you're really charging interest well everything can be converted into interest you know we just talked for 10 minutes which is a certain percentage of hours of the whole day so that can be done but in Islam it's the process how you get there that, that really matters you know just like with halal meat those two cows may have been in the same pasture at the same time and when I serve you two steaks they will look and taste exactly the same it's the process that matters that was between the cow walking in the pasture and the steak landing on your on your plate same with us it's the process it's, it's how we conduct our accounting it, it is the sources of our money there has to be ethical investment so we cannot source money from places that uh, that for example are investing in anything that is uh, that is not ethical from a, from a Muslim perspective. And the way our contracts are structured, uh, each contract is reviewed uh, by Islamic scholars to make sure that it adheres to all the principles of the religion. But from a consumer protection and, and from our uh, as a provider protection, uh, we have the same guarantees under Canadian law as, as any bank would have. Uh, there is no increased risk. The process is just different. Our clients enter into a much different contract um, and they have the satisfaction of knowing that the, the source of the money and, and the money, the way the money is processed and the agreement that they have with us is aligned with their religious views. You know, that's, uh, that's very interesting, Thomas. And I suppose, you know, with your years in politics, you learn fairly early on that things like process and words do matter quite a bit. Well, they do. And, um, and, and, and now we are a little bit more alive to the needs of minority groups and, and you know our Muslim community is definitely a minority but one of the fastest growing minorities but if we want to um, have full engagement of all Canadians in our economy we simply have to provide services that are structured somewhat different and, and that is not on anyone's expense as a matter of fact it, it's to the benefit of our country more builders will be building homes these individuals will now have equity. They will they will accumulate wealth, which they can now leverage and, and spend on cars or, or, or other purchases. So uh, we are simply enabling a segment of our Canadian community um, to participate in our economy. And, you know, when we look at our clients from a demographic perspective, by far most of our clients are born in Canada. 
uh, young families, exceptionally well-educated. They simply uh, chose not to go to a bank, and many of them uh, earn uh, incomes that would qualify them for any, any mortgage with any bank, but they choose to be renters because they don't want to make that decision between uh, committing a sin or, or owning a home. That's fascinating. And let's um, kind of segue a little bit, too. You've done, um, you know, a lot of humanitarian work in your life. And, uh, you know, I know right now on your Facebook, you're showing pictures of uh, having built uh, playgrounds in Cambodia. But more recently, uh, you were in the news um, nationally and internationally for your work in, in assisting Ukraine. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Sure. You know, volunteering has always been part of my life. And, and, and you know, I wasn't born here, as, as your listeners can probably tell by still by my accent, even though I, I'm in Canada for over 40 years. Um, it's, it's a way of giving back. Um, my family was exceptionally privileged to be able to live here. Um, and we came from, from a communist Poland uh, under a horrible regime. Um, so every time I see an opportunity to help out uh, in that way, I do. So yes, we have been building playgrounds throughout the world. Those are decommissioned Canadian playgrounds refurbished. But Ukraine really started with a telephone call. I, you know, just after the war started, uh, made a phone call to um, our former premier Ed Stelmach, uh, probably one of our Canadian most prominent Ukrainian Canadians, and, and said, and I said to him, look, there must be something we can do. Let's roll up our sleeves and see if we can motivate a few people to donate. Little did we know that just by the power of social media, we started an avalanche um, over two months, perhaps. We have raised more than $35 million uh, in donations, both in cash and, and in goods. We had two warehouses the size of Costco filled with, with humanitarian aid products, which we ended up shipping. We, we had an airplane, Boeing 787 Dreamliner, donated by the Polish Airlines that flew into Edmonton to pick up some of the most critical medical uh, equipment and flew it to, uh, to Warsaw and then onto Ukraine. Uh, we brought in 67 refugees on that aircraft. So it, it started ballooning at us. Um, Ed Stomach and I simply became coordinators, but and, and Canadians from across Canada were donating to this, um, to this uh, fund. We had trailers coming in from across Canada with diapers and the medical equipment and, and, and fire search and rescue equipment. It was phenomenal. I, I guess we struck the right chord. And at that point in time, Canadians were looking for, for a venue where they can somehow contribute and have the satisfaction of knowing that it is going to get uh, to where uh, the products are intended to get to. And perhaps some of the trust in, in Ed and myself had something to do with it. It wasn't just the two of us. We, we were blessed with hundreds of volunteers that worked full-time hours every day for two, three months sorting um, our products in a warehouse. And, um, and that's how it came together, really at the spur of the moment. And those supplies went out uh, on that uh, 787. They landed in, I believe, uh, Warsaw, Poland. And uh, where did they go from there? How did they help uh, the, the, the Ukrainians on the ground? Well, only one-tenth or so of it went on the 787. Uh, critical medical equipment uh, that needed to be there you know, yesterday went on the airplane. The rest of the stuff was shipped by containers, by sea cans. So we were shipping container after container, it all went to, uh, the plane flew to Warsaw, containers flew to, uh, uh, went by sea to Gdynia and Poland. And then uh, Ukrainian and Polish volunteers would, would offload the containers and the airplane 
and subdivide uh, all the goods into into small batches that were transported in civilian vehicles, vans, minivans, trucks, uh, far into eastern Ukraine where the, where the conflict uh, was. Uh, so that was all done by volunteers. On a sad note, uh, our volunteers in Poland, um, we lost two Ukrainian and one Polish driver. Uh, they were intercepted by Russians um, and, and uh, killed. Um, so that was, um, you know, the dark undertone of, of this entire initiative. But uh, it shows you how how important it was uh, for Ukrainians and for Poles over there to, to help them out. Um, they were literally putting their lives on the line fighting for, for freedom of Ukraine by delivering uh, those goods. And we're just going to take our second break here on Fort McMurray Matters before we hop back into it with former Deputy Premier Thomas Lukasik. We're back to Fort McMurray Matters. Brought to you by Cooper & Company Law Firm and Fort McMurray Orthodontics on Mix 103.7. And we're back here on Fort McMurray Matters. I'm Sean Kreitz. Happy to be with you. John Tupper, our other reporter, is also in studio. And he's chatting with former Deputy Premier Thomas Lukasik. No, we're, I know that in Fort McMurray, we've had uh, over 100 uh, refugees from Ukraine come into our community. Um, and you were a part of helping out uh, one family of those. We're coming up to the uh, one-year mark of, of the start of Russia's invasion in Ukraine and what was looking like initially a very fast war is turning on to a long, um, dragged-on conflict. Uh, do you have any plans for continued aid or has the type of needs um, that are faced by Ukraine uh, changed over time? Yes. So uh, I am still working very closely with the Ukrainian-Canadian Congress and, and also here in Alberta on the ground, the Canadian-Polish Historical Society. Those are sort of the two groups that were instrumental in, in putting this together with us. Uh, we are looking at, let's call it United for Ukraine 2.0, second wave, but this time we will not be collecting goods because the time and, and the cost of shipping goods from Canada to, uh, to Poland is absorbing a lot of resources, but we will be focusing more on cash donations for Ukraine because they can source what they need in Europe and it is much cheaper and faster to, to deliver what's needed over there. But also we will be focusing on restructuring of Ukraine. You're right, this war is now almost a year long. We don't know when it will end, but we know that it will end. And there is critical infrastructure in Ukraine that has to be rebuilt. And, and that is something that we will be focusing on as well, both from a financial perspective, but also from the logistical perspective, uh, trying to position Canadian companies in a way that they can participate in, in rebuilding Ukraine. And, and there will be hundreds and thousands of billions of dollars that will need to be invested into Ukraine, but, but also it is important that Canadian companies have the opportunity of doing some of that work and lending our skills to restructuring Ukraine. And also, you know, Canadian companies deserve to, to profit from it because uh, Canada has been exceptionally uh, generous with Ukraine. We're coming a little short on time now, Thomas, but I do want to, uh, since I have you on the line, really with a few political questions. So we have a provincial election coming up on May 29th, presumably. Um, any predictions? You know, Alberta politics is, is, is probably one of the most difficult things uh, to, to predict. Looking at the track record of our current government, anywhere in the world at any time, one would say there is no way that they will get reelected. However, Albertans vote with their wallets and when the price of oil is high 
which is never due to any Alberta government. No government can ever take credit for that. It's, 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 a, it's a world phenomenon. We tend to re-elect current governments. When the price of oil goes down, um, unjustly, we tend to punish current governments. So it, it really depends on what the economy is going to look like when the election happens. And unfortunately, it, it will, no matter how we vote, it will not be a judgment on the performance of the government, but it will be expression of our either satisfaction or frustration with oil prices, which I have to tell you as a, as a beneficiary of winning four elections because of good oil prices, um, I will be the first one to tell you that it, this kind of voting isn't doing Alberta any good because very often we end up with mediocre governments who simply get elected based on the price of a, of a single commodity. Uh, and when you look actually at elections, and again, I'll be the first one to tell you, uh, when election dates weren't fixed, and frankly, they still aren't, that's why you say presumably in May, uh, we were always calling elections based on the price of the uh, per barrel of oil because we knew that it would guarantee us any re-election. So when, when uh, you know, pundits wonder how is it that the PC government stayed in power for 44 years, this is one large reason why. And look at which premiers got elected and re-elected and which premiers got punted by their own parties, uh, more PC. You will always see a direct correlation to the price of oil and how the economy um, subsequently was doing, which is really ironic because as a provincial government, we have zero, zero impact on the oil patch and, and, and how many people are or aren't employed because uh, this is a commodity that is traded worldwide. And particularly, we are locked with our commodity within North America with no access to Tidewater. No government has ever built pipelines to Tidewater, so you can't tie that to any politics, but that's how we vote. And um, so if economy is good, I think uh, UCP has a chance of getting reelected. If, if the economy uh, slows down a little, then polling would show um, that NDP has a shot at it. Any, uh, any particular uh, writings to watch? Yes, uh, definitely. Uh, actually, you know, Alberta politically is like a three-legged stool, uh, you, and you have to win two out of three. Uh, rural Edmonton and Calgary. Uh, I think Edmonton is, uh, nothing's ever sewn up, but it is pretty secure for NDP. And I think that the one um, UCP seat may even be lost and, and gained by NDP. Um, rural Alberta seems to be spoken for by and large for UCP, perhaps with the exception of Medicine Hat and, and Leadbridge. Um, and, and the sort of the donuts around uh, the, the donut around Edmonton. But Calgary is where the battle is going to be. Whether Calgarians will look at the track record of UCP and, and cast the ballot accordingly or, or will they continue with, you know, with the traditional, um, traditional voting. So I, I think we should be focused particularly on Calgary uh, because that's what will either make or break UCP and NDP. Well, thank you for that, uh, Thomas. And that's all the time we have for now. Thank you for joining us on Forming Murray Matters. And uh, we wish you all the best in your future endeavors. Thank you so much. And all the best to all your listeners. That's the end of another edition of Fort McMurray Matters. Want a copy of this episode or any past episode? Download the podcast at Mix1037FM.com. Brought to you by Cooper & Company Law Firm and Fort McMurray Orthodontics on Mix103.7.